This is Rory Spiegel and Ryan Radecki, and this is the Annals of Emergency Medicine podcast. It is May 2020. We're back in again for another great month. Ryan, you doing all right? Yep. Staying healthy, staying staying cool. <laughs> I don't even know what the, how to answer that, but why don't we just get into the articles? <laughs> well, I'm healthy again, and I'm cool. With any... <laughs> You're just trying to bring it back to the weather as usual, and we're going to avoid the topic entirely. So why don't you start with the first article? Oh, very good. All right. The first article we'll talk about this month is called One-Year Mortality and Associated Factors in Patients Receiving Out-of-Hospital Naloxone for Presumed Opioid Overdose. Our lead author here is Nicholas P. Ashburn, and they are at the Wake Forest School of Medicine. And this is a very straightforward article without really much controversy, because it's pretty clearly a bad thing when uh, someone has had enough of an opiate that they require emergency reversal in the out-of-hospital setting. So this study asks a pretty simple question. After that very bad thing has happened, and they required naloxone for emergency reversal, how are they doing at one year? As you might expect, not so great. This is just a retrospective review of patients for whom EMS recorded pre-hospital naloxone use for reversal in suspected opiate overdose. They had 3,085 out-of-hospital encounters, 73% of whom improved and uh, had a documented improvement after naloxone. At one year, 15% of all patients for whom naloxone was used were dead. As compared with an age-adjusted general population mortality rate in North Carolina during the study period, the expected death rate would have been 1.1%. So, clearly, being so clinically ill that EMS thinks you require naloxone is a very poor prognostic feature. Those who did not respond to naloxone, assumed to be another underlying medical etiology, did worse than those who responded, but that still left that 13% of those who responded assumed to have had an opioid overdose, were dead at one year. The authors generally state providers ought to be aware of this increased mortality and connect potentially eligible patients with resources for treatment of substance abuse. And I think the, the numbers overall have general face validity, but their precision is likely terrible. Um, there's a lot of assumptions regarding the response to naloxone, the matching of patients for vital record searches, etc., etc. But the overall point is probably valid. If there's a chance to intervene for an opiate overdose and connect somebody with something that might potentially improve their long-term outcomes, don't miss that chance. Yeah, I mean, these results are fairly sobering. You know, if they're not exactly precise and it's 8% or 16%, it's a little bit off. Um, I don't think that really changes the underlying message, which is, you know, these patients have a significantly higher mortality and you have a chance to intervene in a meaningful way. Um, with some other kind of medical assisted therapy um, and and support for their substance abuse. Yeah, that's exactly the point. All right, let's move on to our next article, which is Opiate-Related Emergency Department Encounters, a Patient Encounter and Community Characteristics Associated with Repeat Encounter. And the lead author is Casey Balio. So essentially, these authors attempted to examine factors that may predict which patient presenting following an opiate exposure are at risk for repeat encounters. Using the Indiana Network for Patient Care database, the author conduct a retrospective analysis of all ED encounters at four health systems in Indiana between 2012 and 2017. Opiate-related encounters were defined by ICD-9 codes. Overall, there was over 12,000 opiate-related encounters across 
a little over 9,000 patients. Nearly one quarter, about 22% of the patients had two or more opiate-related encounters. Both the number of opiate-related encounters and the proportion that were repeat encounters increased over time, but the number of repeat encounters increased out of proportion to total encounters. So the number of repeat encounters in 2012 was 9%, and it was up to 34% in 2017. The patient at index ED encounter had a benzodiazepine prescription, or the encounter was heroin-related, the odds of subsequent ED encounters was greater. Also, if the patient was uninsured or through or insured through Medicaid, they had a greater chance of having a subsequent encounter. And unsurprisingly, the number of previous opioid-related encounters was associated with a higher odds of having a subsequent encounter. Additionally, these, these findings remain consistent following the author's multiple sensitivity analyses. Obviously, the biggest limitation here is ICD-9 codes to identify opioid-related encounters. If the encounter wasn't coded as an opioid-related event, um, it wouldn't be included in this data set. In addition, they had no real way of encountering for patients who had died from opiates over this time period and thus wouldn't have had a second encounter. That being said, I think the results are fairly consistent with previous data examining similar data sets. But how exactly do we operationalize this data? It's far less clear. Do we offer substance abuse to only people with increased risk of return? I don't think so. And what about Narcan or other medical-assisted therapies? Again, this data is not strong enough to make such clinical decisions based off. Yeah, I mean, effectively, their numbers have faced validity. Uh, people who have had repeated encounters for opioid use, opiate poisoning, opiate misuse, etc. Their, their inclusion codes for ICD-9 or ICD-10, they're more likely to come back. Um, so this is important. You know, it's just a, another brick in sort of that foundational sort of data that you need to inform policy or garner resources for, you know, the people who, you know, to get a social worker, to get addiction and substance abuse counselors in your emergency department. Because these, you can't just go to people, you know, the policymakers and say, hey, you know, I think we are seeing a lot of people with opiate misuse and they keep coming back. We should have somebody in our department. You need an article like this to help support that sort of that, that sort of ask, that sort of resource ask. Because when you show them these data um, and they can see the actual sort of value of putting somebody in the emergency department to potentially decrease the recidivism, then that, that you can start moving that argument forward. Yeah, I mean, I think the most useful uh, part of this article is showing that the rate of opiate encounters is increasing along with the rate of re-encounters um, as you try to get into kind of risk stratifying people who are at higher risk for um, a second encounter. Um, that becomes far less useful um, and clinically operational. All right. Well, now we've had two sort of sobering opiate articles. Let's have a slightly less sobering opiate article, depending on your opinion. Um, this one <laughs> is called Opioid Use During the Six Months After an Emergency Department Visit for Acute Pain, a prospective cohort study. The lead author here is Benjamin Friedman from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Um, and this is another pretty straightforward observational study of opiate use, looking uh, at the persistence of opiate use after an initial ED visit for acute pain. In particular, this study looked at opiate-naive patients presenting to two emergency departments, specifically those associated with Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx. And these were people with acute pain. And they, they, acute pain is fairly loosely described in this article. It could continue, constitute any condition causing symptoms for 10 days or less and not recurrent within the preceding six months. Two-thirds of the patients that they enrolled had some sort of musculoskeletal pain, whether it was extremity pain, neck pain, or back pain. 
Um, and most patients included in this little cohort received oxycodone acetaminophen as their opiate, with the remainder primarily codeine acetaminophen and hardly any hydrocodone acetaminophen. Uh, patients uh, also underwent a risk score for opiate use and misuse, and most scored at low risk for opioid misuse. So what happened to these 484 patients that they enrolled? So 75% of them never filled another prescription for opioids during the six-month follow-up period, as far as these researchers could tell, you know, looking at their linked databases and in telephone follow-up. Some of them actually didn't even fill the prescription they got from the emergency department. Then there were about 10% who filled at least a second prescription. And then there were you know, smaller and smaller subsets with increasing opiate fills over the next few months. They went into some detail on the five patients, the 1% of their original 584, who did fill several prescriptions, you know, six or more prescriptions with you know, large amounts of morphine equivalents. And they said, well, here are the people who succumbed, as I say, succumbed to chronic opiate uh, you know, misuse after an emergency visit, department visit where they got a prescription for opiates. Well, one of them was a, a patient who had a new chronic pain after a motor vehicle accident, which, you know, is, it, it's, it's fair to say. Um, one person had a femur fracture uh, at their initial visit, and they subsequently underwent operative repair and had a complicated and prolonged recovery period. Uh, another patient had an ulna fracture who ultimately underwent operative repair. Um, another patient whose first ED visit was for Zoster and received a prescription for opiates, but then had an unrelated abdominal surgery. And then finally, one patient with osteoarthritis for whom it was not clear what the reason they continued to use opioids. So, you know, the risk of persistent use of opioids, at least in this population, after that, you know, initial ED visit, when you're opiate naive for acute pain, was very low. Um, you know, only 1%. And of those, you know, three went on to have a surgery. These data should be generalized with caution. You know, this is two hospitals in the Bronx with, you know, a very, this very specific subset of patients who are at low risk for misuse and so on and so forth. And we obviously need to be con uh, continue to be judicious with opioids, but it's not one of those things where it's obviously instantly addictive and people develop a dependency upon opioids. This is a fantastic study. I, I love this. This is, this is, uh, I mean, this is really, really well done. Uh, you're right. It's a small study out of two hospitals, but this is exactly what we are looking for. You know, a lot of these large kind of retrospective data spaces where they go and show that, you know, this amount of patients were on opioids after they were prescribed opiates on the ED are so confounded with bias. Um, and you can see here where those mistakes would have made. I, I imagine that if you had, had done this in a randomized fashion and randomized half these patients to you know ibuprofen and the other half to opioids, you'd still have these five patients on opioids down the line because like you said, they had a femur fracture, they had additional surgeries. And you can see here, there is, is obvious reasons why some of these patients still required opiate prescriptions. Mainly they were still in pain from either their initial injury or an, an additional insult later on down the line. Um, and it does start to give us the idea of the true risk of short courses of opioids in the emergency department. 
Because I mean, uh, there's lots of places that make you specifically document that you looked at a you know a, phys- a prescription monitoring database, or that you, you know, some pl- some places even make you document that you had a discussion with a patient about the risks of receiving opioids in an opioid naive patient. There's there's a whole spectrum of these like sort of you know top down interventions that people have you know have made based on those retrospective studies that you're talking about. Whereas the actual acute risk in the emergency department for a certain subset of patients that you know we could probably use our good clinician judgment about is extremely low. Or, you know, you could even say one more stuff. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> the risk off the first prescription is almost essentially zero. The risk off the second prescription becomes a little bit higher. Uh, and so at some point, you could actually identify the patients who are at an increased risk. Um, and, you know, if the true risk from the emergency department is this low, um, then one could develop a kind of protocol or strategy to identify those few patients without kind of um, under-treating the pain of everybody presenting to the ED with a femur fracture. Yeah. Uh, yes. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you know, neither one of us are, are, are belittling the, the, the opioid problem that we're currently in, um, but I think this does highlight the fact that, that you know, the, the short course of opioid prescriptions that come out of the emergency department are not the major problem here. No, no, certainly that first prescription in the opiate naive patient is not the gateway to, you know, a lifetime of use and misuse. All right, excellent. Well, let's move on. So our next article, risk of venothromboembolism after carbon monoxide poisoning, a nationwide population-based study. And the lead author is Yong Gil Cho. Ryan, did you know you were increased risk for VTE following carbon monoxide exposure? <laughs> well, now I do. Yeah, I didn't really know either. But, you know, these authors conducted an interesting analysis attempting to quantify this risk of VTE following carbon monoxide exposure um, and whether it was increased or not. Using an administrative claims data, the authors conducted a nationwide cohort crossover study. They compared the risk of venothromboembolism in a cohort of patients exposed to carbon monoxide for a one-year course, and then the same patient again one year later. They identified patients using ICD-10 codes for CO exposure and excluded any patients that had been diagnosed with VTE in the preceding two years prior to this exposure. Their primary outcome, VTE, was also identified by ICD-10 coding. The authors included 22,699 patients diagnosed with carbon monoxide poisoning between 2004 and 2015. In the two-year period after carbon monoxide poisoning, a total of 219 patients developed venothromboembolism. There was 138 VTE cases in the first year and 81 in the second year crossover period. The risk of VTE following carbon monoxide exposure seemed to be elevated in the first three months after exposure. When the authors focused on this period, the true risk seemed to be in the first 30 days of exposure, citing an odds ratio of 13.4. This increased risk seemed to be there in both inpatient and outpatient CO exposures. So obviously, this is a retrospective analysis. And like all such analyses, there's a potential for a great deal of confounding. The crossover design does control for some of this, but the authors do not discuss how they handle loss to follow-up or if the patient died in the two years following exposure. Most importantly, though, there, even if there is an increased risk, it seems to be fairly small. The event rate for VTE in the follow-up period was less than 1%, even in the highest cohort. And so it's unclear whether the risk of prophylactic anticoagulation is even justified in a 
cohort like this. I might even go one step further, and I'm not even sure I would tell patients they were at increased risk for venous thromboembolism because I think even at this 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 rate of events, you're at higher risk for a false positive test if you tell somebody to worry about their chest pain or their lower extremity pain being related to a venous thromboembolism. They come into the emergency department and they get a CT pulmonary angiogram. Their risk of false positive still probably higher than the risk of true positive, even if there is an elevated risk from baseline. Yeah, completely agree. This is this is like the story of, you know, statistical significance where the clinical significance is, is really questionable at best. So so interesting. Yeah, a little bit higher risk for venous thromboembolism, but not enough to make uh, to change practice or even change what probably even the discussion we would have with our patients about mon- self monitoring for symptoms. Agreed. All right. Uh, moving on to another topic. This is called Effect of C- Accountable Care Organizations on Emergency Medicine Payment and Care Redesign, a Qualitative Study. Lead author here is Michelle Lin, and she is at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Uh, and this is an article generally focused on sort of the effect of these accountable care organizations on emergency department care. And accountable care organizations, if you recall, are these so-called integrated provider groups with payment incentives to reduce healthcare expenditures by, in theory, receiving a proportion of the savings. These authors conducted structured qualitative interviews with 22 persons affiliated with ACOs, including some of those involved specifically with emergency department leadership. They interviewed uh, seven different organizations across seven different organizations with varying sizes, revenues, incentives, mixes of freestanding and academic sites, and mixes of risk sharing. Lots of narratives from different leaders talking about the challenges of integrating emergency department care into the ACO structure. A lot of emphasis uh, came up on trying to put in place infrastructure to help patients from ending up in the emergency department to start with, recognizing the cost of low-value ED visits to the entire system, but not a lot of support for ED providers. Uh, Some of the narratives discussed tension between ED providers and the system, uh, the ACO sort of framework, for putting constraints on their ability to care for patients and asking them to assume greater risk or responsibility without clear support or incentive. Um, Only one person interviewed had plans for ED providers to even share in the ACO savings. Um, so obviously, you can. it's difficult to generalize these organizations to all ACOs, but clearly these groups are identifying similar barriers to support or integrate the role of the emergency department into ACOs. These, to some extent, I'm sure these efforts and struggles are likely humorous to countries with nationalized healthcare systems who have been, you know, trying to make their patients whole and optimize the system for value for a long time, while the ACO structure is kind of trying to build it on the fly out of a fee-for-service fragmented care model. The issues they identify as far as coordinating care are also fairly predictable reading this from the perspective of somebody like me who has been at Kaiser for a few years. It's very recognizable the sort of challenges they're getting into with especially and very clear that they don't have the structural underpinning support uh, to make this work effectively. So without even trying to work in the financial effects of the last few months, these authors are making reasonable calls for trying to adjust pay- payment models for emergency physicians to align with the goals of ACOs, rather than uh, this typical fee-for-service system um, from which most emergency department revenues are derived. 
Yeah, I mean, so what I got from this article was just really the kind of the piecemeal process that we have to do these kind of um, systems in since we since we don't have a national healthcare system or anything even close to that, you know, you're kind of throwing in these 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 systems to reduce care and reduce needless care. Um, but you haven't really corrected all the other problems in the system, including, you know, increased risk to the emergency physicians and our kind of broken legal system and so on and so forth. Um, I thought it was a really interesting read. There was a lot of stuff there I hadn't even thought about that would be kind of obstructions to flow. Um, yeah. So I'd recommend everyone to take a look. And the appendix is full of all sorts of narrative uh, bits. So if you're really interested in this sort of uh, experience and trying to you know hear how ACOs are experiencing things in the United States, it's definitely worth a read. Um, and then it definitely it comes with this uh, related, related article from Avi Baer with the University of Colorado entitled Enhancing Appropriate Admissions, an Advanced Alternative Payment Model for Emergency Physicians. And it ties these discussions to a related topic, the death of the sustainable growth rate methodology for the Medicare payment model. Remember that? thing that they had to pass the doc fix for every so every few years because the, the medicare payment model was so broken they had to every few years panic legislation to get through so the, there was a huge pay cut to docs um, but in any event in 2015 the medicare access and chip reauthorization act or macra was passed uh, and this article describes the pathways to the value-based payment programs that are in macra um, either the merit-based incentive payment system or the alternative payment model program uh, merit-based payment is based on these sort of predefined quality and cost measures and is the most frequently used by physicians across the united states um, but then there's also these things called the alternative payment models that encourage risk sharing. And this is uh, you know, uh, sort of sharing the financial risk. And this has actually been uh, at the ASEP level, sort of the ASEP committee level to be proactive with respect to how emergency physicians might be financially at risk because of these payment reforms. And so the ASEP has actually come with a model that it calls the acute unscheduled care model. And it basically, it, uh, it encourages ED physicians to make high-value disposition decisions, sort of recognizing that inpatient hospitalization is one of the most expensive venues of care. And they're sort of building a model that will reward physicians uh, who reduce Medicare expenditures by uh, reducing avoidable admissions um, and enhancing post-discharge uh, coordination and avoiding post-discharge events. Um, the initial, this is sort of, it's it's gone through these various committees at ASAP, and it's gone through sort of a couple of rounds of review, actually, with the federal government level. Um, and uh, the initial two years, for if you're curious about, like, what sort of clinical scenarios might be involved or being monitored, um, it's going to be uh, involving patients with uh, avoidable admissions for chest pain, avoidable admissions for abdominal pain. Uh, altered mental status and syncope. And these were kind of chosen because they are presentations with significant variation, uh, interphysician variation as far as ED disposition goes. Um, and they plan on adding additional elements at future times. Uh, this is not specifically my area of expertise, <laughs> these sort of policy things. And so I can't go delving deep too deeply into the policies under development. Um, but as far as a practicing physician who's out there, uh, this is just one more piece of sort of, you know, administrative overhead and incentives and probably box check, you know, box checking that you're going to have to be aware of, you know, moving forward that's uh, potentially affect your uh, financial bottom line. 
Yeah, like you, I'm nowhere near expert in this. I can't even tell if this is going to be a good or a bad thing at this point. <laughs> you know, there are well, some Well, I mean, red... it's, it sounds like the ACO is a little bit. It's like the ACO is a great idea in theory. You know, right. we're all going to integrate and we're all going to help each other and do high value care. Um, yeah. The mechanism through which it works and then the financial infrastructure and the, you know, sort of the sort of the the gross momentum of our current model of care is going to be you know, a big impediment. And it's going to, you know, those curves that they show where administrators go up and physicians stay flat. Uh, this is unfortunately one of those administrators go up sort of things where we're not actually improving the, doing much to improve the care of patients necessarily. Hopefully right. we are. That's, yeah. that's what it's intended to do. Yeah, you know, uh, that's kind of what I got, the sense I got as well, that there's some, you know, blinking, blinking red lights, that there's going to be some unintended consequences with this kind of stuff. All right, well, let's move on. Our next article, high flow nasal cannula versus conventional oxygen therapy and relieving dyspnea in emergency palliative patients with do not intubate status, a randomized crossover study. And the lead author is Anlak Rangsunbun. The number of patients visiting the emergency department towards the end of their life with concerns about comfort are increasing, and one of the most prominent symptoms in patients who are dying is dyspnea. Our go-to intervention in these cases are typically opiate medications, and while these are still the workhorse in cases like this, there is some evidence to suggest that high-flow nasal cannula can be used as an adjunct to limit the discomfort or feeling of breathlessness. These authors conducted a randomized, non-blinded crossover study, which was conducted on 48 palliative care patients age 18 years or older with do not intubate status, presenting to the emergency department with hypoxemic respiratory failure. Patients were randomized to either high-flow nasal cannula, followed by a non-rebreather mask, each for 60 minutes, or the other way around, non-rebreather mask, followed by a high-flow nasal cannula. Overall, when patients received high-flow nasal cannula, they seemed to do better. At 60 minutes, the mead modified Borg scale in patients receiving conventional oxygen therapy was 4.9 versus 2.9 in patients receiving high-flow nasal cannula. Respiratory rates are also lower in the high-flow nasal cannula group, and the patients who were receiving high-flow nasal cannula had significantly lower first-hour morphine doses. So this is a small study, but it does seem to indicate that high-flow nasal cannula provides a modest improvement in comfort. Obviously, we have to balance these benefits with your hospital supply of high-flow nasal cannulas and what other um, what other uh, conditions are, are using them at the time. For example, right now with COVID-19, all our high-flow nasal cannulas are pretty much taken up, and so this would be a harder um therapy to give. Um, but, you know, hopefully in the future when we're not existing in a pandemic, um, this would be much easier to, to deploy. Yeah. I mean, I think in some extent, I think people are going to be a whole lot more comfortable using high flow nasal cannula after this current pandemic and they'll, they'll go to it, you know, instead of, you know, I mean, a lot of these people we end up putting on BiPAP or CPAP was a non-invasive ventilation, but that's not terribly comfortable at all. I mean, it, it's, it, may do a better job at reducing their dyspnea, but it's, it's, it, they can't talk to their family. They can't, it's, it covers their face. It gives them pressure sores. There's lots of problems with, you know, the other non-invasive modes, modes for ventilation. So this is a great alternative to think of. Yeah. It might even be the case that since we've stocked up on high flow nasal cannulas, we have a lot more of them to use after the COVID pandemic has passed. Yeah. Um, and, uh, the next one I'm going to talk about real quickly is one called, is it truly alpha incidents of thrombotic events with endexinate alpha at a single academic medical center? Uh, lead author here is Katie Parcells from upstate university Sy hospital Syracuse. 
Um, if you remember, maybe a, uh, almost a year ago now, probably, we uh, published a journal club about Andexnet Alpha and its uh, publication, uh, sort of a single arm series. And we had, you know, appropriate critiques of, you know, the structure of the of and what you could really glean from its utility about that. And one of the things that we commented upon was that, you know, as there, there were different data sets published over the years as the study was conducted, there were different numbers of events published depending on, you know, which study you looked at. And uh, one of the big questions was exactly how much thrombotic thrombosis uh, over the baseline do you get when you, you know, uh, give somebody indexnet alpha to bind all of their um, factor 10A because it also binds tissue factor pathway inhibitor, which is a, sort of a counter-regulatory anticoagulant protein. In any event, this little research letter uh, showed that they had given indexnet alpha 36 times since they added to the hospital formulary in January 2019, and they had seven thrombotic events, including one myocardial infarction and six ischemic strokes, and they were basically all within one few days of indexnet alpha treatment. So um, there's not a whole lot of data presented here. It's one single experience. It's basically a case series, but uh, certainly uh, if anybody is using this, they need to think about so this is basically, uh, you know, essentially a case series with just, you know, 36 cases at a single center. Uh, but this is a pretty high percentage of thrombotic events, much higher than you would expect from the uh, original literature. So just as we're moving forward with Indexnet Alpha, these authors are encouraging people to keep track of and potentially report their risk of venous thromboembolism, um, almost like a safety monitoring for, you know, all of us crowdsourced. Um, as they move forward with uh, additional clinical trials with Indexnet Alpha, uh, we should still be cautious with its use. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, this is definitely concerning. And as you said, it's a small data set. Um, I think, you know, with a lot of these drugs, it's it's kind of hard to do post-marketing surveillance as, you know, first, the original data isn't very good. And so it's hard to figure out what the true risk of, of adverse events is. And then, you know, you trusting the, the pharmaceutical companies to do their own post-marketing surveillance is obviously a flawed system. Um, so it's stuff like this that actually gives us some idea of the, the risk of these, these medications as we start implementing them into our healthcare systems. Yeah. Um, but certainly it is concerning. I, obviously, it's not enough patients to say one way or another in any way, but um, concerning enough for us to feature it in the, the podcast. Absolutely. All right. I got one more. Yeah. Final article. Comparing effectiveness of initial airway interventions for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, a systematic review and network meta-analysis of clinical controlled trials. So the great airway debate continues in cardiac arrest. And the question is always, how do you handle the airway? Um, initially, it used to be ABCs. And then shortly after, we moved to C. A, B, focusing on compressions and, and moving the concerns of the airway down, but there's still a question. Do you intubate the patient? Do you use a simple BVM or do you use something in the middle like a superglottic airway? Um, and there's been a number of studies looking at this, and these authors conducted a network meta-analysis. Um, to see if they could come up with an answer. Um, you know, there is some difference of a network meta-analysis from a traditional meta-analysis. A traditional meta-analysis looks at pool data from head-to-head -head comparisons, comparing two or more interventions. Um, but if one intervention wasn't compared to the other, there's no really way at looking at their respective effectiveness. So in this case, um, if you're comparing intubation to... 
a supraglottic airway, you can look at trials that compare intubation to supraglottic airway. But if you wanted to see how supraglottic airway compared to a BVM, but there's no trial looking at specifically those two groups, there's no way of, of comparing that data in a standard meta-analysis. What a network meta-analysis does, it looks at direct evidence. So, you know, st- compiles all that evidence looking at studies that looked at um, intubation versus an, uh, supraglottic airway, and then indirect evidence, um, which basically looked at the patients who were randomized to a supraglottic airway in one trial and the patients that were randomized to um, a BVM in another trial, and using the link between them, which is the intubation group, which you saw in, in, in both kind of studies, they're able to indirectly compare those two groups. And so the hope here is that you can get a little more evidence for things that weren't directly looked at in the literature. Um, so they conducted a systematic review of randomized trials or quasi-randomized trials comparing intubation, supraglottic airways, or BVM for patients who experienced out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. They found a total of eight randomized trials and three quasi-randomized trials, and a total of seven, a little over 7,000 patients received intubation. 7,475 received a supraglottic airway, and 1,201 received BVM ventilation. Essentially, they found there was no real difference in important outcomes survival with neurological recovery. Um, They did find that patients with a supraglottic airway had a slightly higher rate of ROSC uh, compared to intubation or BVM, and intubation had a slightly higher rate of ROSC compared to BVM. So this was a fairly extensive systematic room meta-analysis, and it does have some limitations. Like all meta-analysis, it depends on the studies that were included to the quality of the output that you get. Um, but in this case, with the network meta-analysis, that can actually be, be potentiated. So, um, you know, as an example here, the largest study looking at intubation compared to BVM was the Jaber et al. trial. And what you saw here is the success the intubation success was 96%, so much higher than what we see in most studies. And this has the potential um, for making intubation compared to VEM appear better than reality, and which in turn would bias the indirect comparison between BVM and supraglottic airway. In addition, these authors didn't really address whether different forms of airway were better in different types of cardiac arrest. For example, if you have a V-fib arrest, um, where it's thought that you don't really need any airway at all, did one of these types of airway perform better than if you had a PA arrest, which may or may not be arrested? And then the bigger question is, is simply ignoring the airway altogether in the early stages of arrest optimal? Again, this study couldn't address that at all. In an editorial by Justin Benoit and Henry Wang, They discuss the impact these results will have on the pre-hospital system and what doing less intubations would mean for skill preservation in pre-hospital providers. Yeah. And I mean, certainly if you're not doing intubations, you're going to lose your intubation skills overall. And then you have to invest in additional training to keep keep your skills sharp. Um, And then you ask, is that the best investment of limited resources for available for training paramedics in the pre-hospital setting? So again, this doesn't answer all your questions. It doesn't tell us it's not terribly prescriptive with what to do with these data either. Um, are we ready for, as I say, are we ready for such a radical cultural shift? Uh, and I think, you know, we're, we're moving in that direction, um, certainly away from mandatory ETI and moving closer to either SGAs or just ignoring the airway altogether. Um, they, you can look at the met- network meta-analysis as well and say, well, you can kind of cherry pick these ROSC data, but then you go down the, you know, go down across the table and you look at favorable neurologic outcome. 
And it's so dismal that it doesn't even matter. Um, you know, there's very few studies that actually show a difference in uh, favorable neurologic outcome with any of these specific interventions. You wonder about the reliability of the observations. Um, certainly endotracheal innervation doesn't seem like it's the best uh, best choice, uh, at, least, at least compared with the subglottic airways. Um, but this is something we've talked about before. Um, and then we just don't have a good comparison, I don't think, to a uh, bag bell mask, but I think that would be the next next thing to investigate uh, in a rigorous fashion. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you know when you look at this data in whole, you see that that intubation, if done perfectly, is about as good as an SJN, and if did poorly, you have worse outcomes. Um, so I think a superglottic airway, like you said, is ideal. I think we don't have great data comparing a superglottic airway to BVM, but I think BVM does offer some logistical disadvantages as you have to hold the seal and it then it's much harder to kind of move a patient and deal with them. Whereas a superglottic airway just makes things much easier. Um, and I think it's a reasonable compromise with the time it takes to place an SGA versus just doing a BVM. Um, but like you said, the, the biggest issue here is, is, is any of these things needed in the vast majority of patients? Um, and if not, or, and if so, at what point during the cardiac arrest? Yeah. So, uh, more, I mean, the, the, the only constant in medicine is that we should continue to change practice based on new information. So we should just keep on pursuing new information. There's no reason to let, to, to stop check, stop looking into new questions here to better inform our training of paramedics. Well, indeed, as long as they keep publishing more information, we'll keep discussing it here on the Annals Podcast. Well, that wraps it up for May 2020. Uh, we'll be back at you in June. Uh, in the meantime, stay safe. And if you have feedback or questions or concerns, uh, please feel free to email annalsaudio uh, at asep.org. Until next time, this was Rory Spiegel and Ryan Rudecki, and this was the Annals of Emergency Medicine Podcast.